Well, it's good to see you here this morning, and uh, if you're new to uh, ACF, first of all, welcome. My name is Dan Min. I uh, serve here as the pastor of ACF, and it's my joy to worship with you, to, to dive into God's Word here together with you. And uh, um, again, for, for any visitors here, we'd love to say hello face-to-face afterwards and welcome you here personally, and so glad you're here, glad you're here. Uh, last week, we, uh, we kicked off a brand new series uh, called Oddballs. Now, I know it sounds a little odd, but, but uh, hopefully you, if you were here last week, you kind of knew where we were going with this series, and uh, if you're kind of stepping into it here uh, this morning, uh, you can catch up by, by uh, viewing messages on our website, or uh, we actually just uh, released a podcast, and so we're on iTunes, and you can do a quick search for ACF on iTunes and subscribe if listening to a, a message is easier than watching. You could catch up and listen to last week's message, and um, this is a series based out of the book of First Peter. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there now, First Peter uh, chapter 2 is where we're going to be looking here today. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand real quickly. We, also, we have some folks coming around. They can hook you up with a Bible here, uh, and uh, you can read along with us. If you don't actually uh, own a personal copy of the Bible feel free to take this home with you. This is our gift to you. Uh, We don't expect it to be returned. We want you to have a Bible, own a Bible. Uh, Furthermore, we want you to read the Bible. And so take it home with you, and uh, you can read along with us. If you are following along in in these Bibles, we are on page 1014. 1014 is where we are here today. Just keep your Bible open to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 here, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, We kicked off the series last week. By talking about how we're all a little odd. Uh, if we're really honest with ourselves, uh, we, would, we would be able to come to a place where we say, okay, Dan, I realize I am perhaps a little odd. I'm, I've been called weird before. I have been known to be a little strange. And for some of us, we've been called weird more so than others, and, and that's okay. Uh, in fact, we went as far as to say that not only are some of us a little odd, a little weird, uh, we went as far as to say that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you identify yourself as a Christian, as a subscriber to this Christian faith, we submitted to you last week that perhaps God might be actually calling you. The calling on your life could be that God is calling you to be a little weird, to be a little odd, to be a little different. Now, the word that Peter used in chapter 1 of 1 Peter uh, is holy. Now, the word holy actually means set apart, entirely different, out of the ordinary, anything but normal. And Peter tells us, hey, I want you to be holy as God is holy. And we said that the means to holiness is actually through obedience. Obedience to God's truth, obedience to his word, that, that when we align our lives to God, what God says in his word, we are actually living wholly different, completely out of the ordinary, abnormal lives. Because let's be honest, what person who doesn't know Jesus in the world here today are like, hey, I want to live by this book, sign me up. It's just not normal. You don't see that. And so right off the bat, when we say we subscribe to the truths of this word, we align our lives to what God says in his his word, we are living actually different, wholly different lives. We are actually living as oddballs in this land. And, and, And so we said that the only response to Christ, according to his word, is a life of obedience. And so we spent some time looking at chapter 1 last week, and today I'd like to jump into chapter 2. And uh, we're going to start with verse 1 and carry it through to verse 10 
and uh, I believe God has some words for us here today. Now remember, Peter's writing this letter. Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, kind of an oddball himself, right? I mean, he did some weird things during his earthly time, uh, in, in Jesus' time. Now Peter was writing this letter to the persecuted Christians during this time. Christians who were undergoing all kinds of hardships and persecutions. Why? Simply because they were living holy lives, different lives, lives that didn't look normal by the world's standards. And so they were undergoing all these persecutions, and Peter's message to the church during this time is, hey, church, hey, Christians, hey, followers of Jesus, stand firm in your oddness. Don't be afraid to be a little different. Don't be afraid to be a little odd and a little weird for Jesus. And so he, he's giving this message, and he continues on in the second chapter of 1 Peter, and we pick it up from verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what it says. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He continues on, and he says, as you come to him, a living stone. Now, Peter's talking about Jesus here. As you come to Jesus, this living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And in verse 5, Peter now turns it on us, and he says, you yourselves are like living stones. And, and as living stones, are be, you guys are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter begins to expound on this concept of a stone. He, he takes this word picture, this metaphor, a little deeper. I wonder where he got that from, right? Hashtag throwback to, you know, stories that move us, right? He learned it from Jesus. Having journeyed with Jesus, Jesus was the master storyteller. He spoke in metaphors, and Peter here takes this metaphor of a stone, and he takes it deeper. In verse 6, he uses scripture now. Listen to what he says. For it stands in scripture, he begins to quote from Isaiah chapter 28 here. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone, hold that word in the back of your mind, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, for those of you who are, uh, may, might be unfamiliar with this part of the scripture in Isaiah, this was a prophetic word given from God to the prophet Isaiah referring to Jesus. This was a messianic prophecy speaking forward into the coming Christ. Uh, this cornerstone who was chosen and precious, uh, who, whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. And now Peter continues his thought, and he says in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. It is honorable for you to believe in Christ. But for those who do not believe, now he begins to quote from Psalm 118 here, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, this is a prophetic word pointing to Jesus. Jesus was this cornerstone who was rejected by man. And then now Peter goes back, flips back into the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, specifically in chapter 8. Here in 1 Peter verse 8, he says, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, what is Peter talking about here? 
what in the world? I mean, maybe he's talking about stones. He's talking about rocks. I mean, what, like, what, what is Peter talking about here? In short, Peter is talking about Jesus. Verses 4 through 8 is all about Jesus. Here in verses 4 through 8, Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone or the cornerstone. Now, architecturally speaking, that, that, you know, because that might not mean a whole lot to you, but architecturally speaking, during this point in time, in ancient civilization, a cornerstone was understood to be the foundational stone. The stone that was actually first laid down, and it was in the laying of that first stone of a building structure that determined the placement and the position of all the subsequent stones that would, that would come forward after that in the building of the structure. It's an important stone. It's an important piece of the architectural uh, stability of the building. So here's what Peter's saying. In, in this kind of metaphor, if the cornerstone was missing, you would have no building. If the cornerstone was missing, you would have no building. If Jesus were missing, we would have no church. We would have no Christian faith. We would have no hope. We would have no redemption. We would have no hope for restoration. Without the cornerstone, there is no building. Furthermore, if the cornerstone were to be somehow misplaced, if it was a little cockeyed or if it was supposed to be at a 90 degree but it's an 80 degree angle, if it's not correctly positioned, it would throw the whole structure off balance. The building could not stand given the misplacement of that first cornerstone. Now listen, church. What Peter is saying here is that our lives are most structurally sound when Jesus is our cornerstone. Our lives make the most sense when Jesus is our foundational stone that we build our lives upon. Now here's what Peter's saying also. In the same vein, he's saying not everyone wants that. You got to understand, not everyone wants Jesus to be their cornerstone. Not everyone wants Jesus to be the foundation of their lives. Some of you know people like this. You have friends like this, maybe some family members, maybe some parents, maybe some people in your life where you say, you know, they, they, they're like, uh, it, it's cool that Jesus works for you. You can do your Jesus thing, but I'm not doing my Jesus. Jesus doesn't do anything for me, so you go ahead and do, get your Jesus on. I'm going to get my life on way. I, I'm just going to do my own thing. Right? I, I mean, if you know some people like that, just give me a head nod real quickly, right? Like, you know people like that. People are like, I just, I don't want Jesus. And Peter says, to those folks, Jesus will come off more like a, like a, a stumbling stone than the chief cornerstone. To them, Peter says, Jesus will come off more like a rock of offense than the rock of salvation. Now, in light of all of this, in light of all of this, Peter then jumps into verse 9 with a big, massive word. He says, but. But. Everyone say it with me. But. But. If my kids were here, they would just be having a ball. Like, you know, seven, five-year-old boys. But we said, but in church, right? But. He drops a big but here. Now, church, let me just teach you biblical interpretation one-on-one. When you see a big but in the Bible... You just got to back that thing up, okay? You just got to back it up because the chances are there's some junk in the trunk. We got to unpack here, okay? Because I'm going to tell you right now, 
Listen now, God doesn't just drop it like it's hot for no reason. Enough with the butt jokes. I, that's, I'm done. I'm done. Now, here's here, like what we're talking about. Now, here's, understand what we're saying here. The reason why this word is so important here is because Peter is drawing a significant comparison here. What Peter is saying is those who reject Jesus, those who disobey God's word, are fundamentally different from you. Those who reject Jesus and refuse Jesus as the cornerstone and the foundation of their lives are fundamentally different from you. And you, as followers of Jesus, are fundamentally different from them. They are different from you. You are different from them. They are different. You get what I'm saying? Here's what Peter is saying. He is addressing the issue of identity here. He's addressing the issue of identity, a very core foundational issue. Now, what is identity? What is identity? Identity is who you are, right? It's, it's who you are. It's who I am. I remember when I first sat down with a mentor friend of mine. Uh, we were actually sitting in a pizzeria, uh, Turriello's actually, uh, in Nyack, New York. And uh, we were sitting and we are just kind of, uh, he asked me a, one of these get-to-know-you type questions. And it wasn't an easy one like, hey, what's your favorite ice cream? Or like, your, you know, what are your hobbies? Or what, do you, what are the things that you like to do? He asked me, so tell me, who is Dan Min? Who is Dan Min? Uh, I, I've asked some of you that same question before, and I gave the same look that some of you have given me. Uh, I, I don't know. I've I, I, I got to be honest with you. I had a really hard time answering that question. Uh, who is Dan Min? Because the truth is, all my go-to answers were all things that I did. They weren't necessarily things that, that, uh, that were descriptive of who I was. All the answers that I gave were things that I did. They, they, they weren't necessarily th uh, things uh, speaking to who I was. In fact, when I think about my entire life, I'm just going to be honest with you here. Much of my life has been... Uh, uh, dictated and determined by the things that I have done throughout the course of my life. In other words, much of my identity was shaped and formed by things that I did. For instance, uh, in church, I grew up in the church and uh, in our youth group, um, you know, I, I, wasn't the, I wasn't the funny guy. You know, I, I wasn't the, the loud, outgoing type. I was actually pretty shy and reserved as a, as a, as a kid in youth group. I, I wasn't seen as the social butterfly that just worked the room. I was seen as sort of the spiritual counselor of my group of peers. I know, not very sexy. I know. It's just like, really? That's, um, but I was seen as this guy, uh, this friend, who friends would come to for spiritual wisdom. You know, they, they, they saw me as a good advice giver. Now, I don't know what kind of good advice I was giving at the age of 13. I had no business of giving out advice at the age of 13. But nonetheless, my friends would come to me and say, hey, Dan, I'm going through this issue. I'm going through this problem. Hey, what do you think I should do? And for much of my years in the youth group program and growing up in youth group in the church, I found my identity in that. Dan. 
the young spiritual guru, you know, that, that's, that's, I, I didn't really go by that, but that's how I saw myself, you know, like that's, that's where I found my identity. In school, some of you know this because I've, used, I, I've, I've uh, said this before, but in school, you know, I was never really good in academics. I wasn't a straight A student, you know, I'm Asian, but don't let looks fool you, you know, like I just, I never got straight A's, I was like a C student at best, and I was okay with C, it was competent, right, like I'm competent enough, a C is good enough, and, and so I, 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 didn't, I didn't find much of my identity in that, um, but I, I was decently athletic, you know, I, I was able to play some sports, and so as I mentioned last week, I picked up the game of volleyball, and uh, you know, I, I became really good at it. By sophomore year in high school, I became uh, the, the captain of our team, and I, I became the captain of our regional team in New York City, and, and, and I became, uh, you know, I led our church league into victories and to championships and all these wonderful things. And for much of my life, I found my identity in that. In fact, in school, I had the nickname, the Asian Flying Squirrel. You know, I just, I, 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 I had hops. I had hops, you know, like, like you know, Mike Kosicki hops. Like, and so I, I, could, I could get up there. I could get up there. Now, so I found my identity in that. In college, uh, again, I wasn't very good in school, right? So I'm not like trying to get a 4.0 GPA. I'm like, I gave up that dream a long time ago. Um, but in, in college, I was asked to be the, the head worship leader on campus, uh, some of you know this, I went to a, a, a Bible college, a Christian college, and so we had all these worship teams, uh, about over a dozen worship teams with all respective different worship leaders, and part of my responsibility was to train up and, and as kind of a peer mentor, raise up the next crop of worship leaders, and I was, my task was to oversee the, help oversee the worship ministry on, on my campus. And for much of my life, for, uh, at least in my college years, I found my identity in that. Now, those are all things that I did at different stages of my life, but they weren't necessarily who I was. They weren't my identity. I found much of my identity in those things, in the things that I did, but those things were not who I was. They were simply things that I did, listen now, for a season. And this is where we get ourselves into some trouble. This is where we get thrown in for a loop. When we root our identity in the things that we do, we go into a full-blown identity crisis when what we do seasonally comes to an end. Some of you know what I'm talking about. L let me just say this. Most things that you do in life come in seasons. Most things that you do in life don't last into all of eternity, but your identity does. And so what do we do? What, what do I do when I'm no longer seen as the wise, spiritual friend that everyone comes to because there's a wiser, more friendlier, smarter guy that comes out from the ranks behind me? What, what, what do I do? I'll tell you what happens. My identity gets shattered into a million pieces. What do I do when I'm no longer the best player on the court? which I soon quickly came to found, find out once I graduated from college. You know, like I was like, I, you know, my body's not doing the things that I want it to do. You know, it's like I can't jump. What do you do when you're not the best player on the court anymore? What do you do when you no longer hold the title of head worship leader because that was a season? And when that season comes to an end, what happens to your identity that you rooted everything, put all your eggs in that basket? What happens when that season ends? Your identity gets shattered. You no longer know who you are. And that's a problem. 
And that's a very significant problem. And that's where we come to the first truth that we see in this passage, and that is this. Who you are is not what you do. Who you are is not what you do. Now, church, I can't emphasize this enough. In fact, I feel like I could spend the rest of today just talking about this. Who you are is not what you do. What you do is not who you are. There's a reason why we are called human beings and not human doings. Because we are more than the sum of our activities. How many of you know that? We are more than the sum of what we do. We are not defined by what we do. And now he, Peter, he drops this big butt in here in verse 9, and he begins to speak into our identity as the people of God. Listen to what he says. He says, but you. Now imagine Peter's talking to every single one of you here in this room, but you, 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 all of you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Hold it right there. Peter says, this is who you are. As oddballs for Jesus, this is your God-given identity. I want to point out just a couple of quick things about this list. Two things very specifically. I want you to notice the status that's represented in this list. Peter uses words like chosen, royal, holy, to describe the followers of Jesus, people like you and me. Now, these are not words to describe any average Joe. When, when you are chosen, you're not seen as dismissible, okay? Some of you have been wrestling with that. I'm dismissible. I'm not valuable. I'm not worthy. Let me tell you right now, that is a lie from the pit of hell. You need, to, you need to rebuke that in the name of Jesus. That is not who you are. Peter says that you are chosen, You're not dismissible. You are worthy and valued enough to be pursued after that God would choose you. You are chosen when you are royalty. He he says you are royal. You are given all the privileges of all the king's resources. You are given complete VIP access to all of heaven's resources. That means everything that God has to offer you Peter says in his next book, all that you need for life and godliness, he has already given to you. You got everything you need. That's what it means to be part of the royal family. You have all of heaven's resources at your disposal. That's crazy to think about. We talked about what it means to be holy last week. He talks about our status. The second thing I want to point out is the standout. The, The standout. Notice Peter never singles any one person out in this list. Rather, his message is not that you are to be the standout. The message is you are to be part of a standout group, also known as the church. You see, that's why ACF, we identify ourselves here as a church. Now, I don't have time to unpack the differences of what makes us a church and not a parachurch and, you know, and, and all of that. But, but here's, here's my point in saying this. You can't do church on your own. You cannot do church. Some of us have known people, maybe you've said this before, I'm just going to do church on my own. I've got a computer. I've got internet access. I've got YouTube clips full of great preachers and churches and all these things. I'm going to just do church in my room. I'm going to do church on my own. I don't need the church. You see, Peter here is saying part of your identity is not found in being the standout. Now, this is a paradigm shift for some of us because some of us have found our identity in being the standout amongst our peers. Peter's like, no, that's not the point. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. Your identity is found in the bigger picture. 
in being part of a collection of people. He uses words like race, chosen race, not to be confused with ethnicity or a cultural background. He's not talking about race in that sense, but he's talking about the human race, the larger scale race. He talks about the priesthood. Royal priesthood, which entails being part of a larger group, a group of priests. Now, just a quick point of clarification on this one. Peter isn't suggesting that we're all called to be priests. Like, go out and buy a black robe, white collar, go to seminary, never get married. You know, like, it's like, go to, you know, be a priest. He's not saying that. Some of you brothers are like, praise the Lord, because I'm not about that life. I need to get married, all right? I got needs, you know. No, he's not saying be a priest in that sense. What he's saying, he's not, he's not talking about what a priest does. He's talking about who a priest is. What a priest is, who a priest is, is a person who, who has immediate access to God's presence. You see, in the Old Testament, in the, uh, in the temple period, you couldn't access God's presence apart from a priest, aside a pre- uh, uh, without a priest. The priest basically served as the liaison between God's people and God's holy presence. What Peter is saying is because of what Christ has done and because of who Christ is, you all, collectively all, have access to God's presence now. The author of Hebrews says because of who Jesus is, the great high priest, you and I once and for all have access to God's presence. You no longer need to go through a medium to access God. You can can just open up God's word. You can come to him in prayer. You can come to church. You can encounter God's presence here and now. And that's why we are part of this group, because we want to experience more of God's presence in our lives. Amen? At least that's why I hope we're here. So he says, your identity isn't found in being the standout. Your identity is actually found in the bigger picture. You're part of this larger body. He uses words like a nation, a people. And and so here we see that the church was intended to be a community of people where we come together and we recognize our collective God-given identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, this leads me to my second point here. You see, Peter tells us our identity in the first part of verse 9, but in the second part of verse 9, he informs us of our activity. He tells us of our identity in the first part of verse 9, but in the second part of verse 9, Peter tells us of our activity. That is, he tells us what we are to do. You see, I'm not saying what you do is insignificant. I'm not saying what you do is, uh, what you do is, is somehow unimportant. I'm just saying what we do ought to be shaped by who we are. To put it differently, what you do flows out of who you are. You are not what you do. But what you do will almost always flow out of who you are. And so Peter, after telling us who we are, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He goes on and he says that you may proclaim his excellencies. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who you are is most certainly not what you do, but what you do will almost always flow out of who you are. Let me put it differently. When you are firm in your understanding of who God has made you to be, you will be clear on what God has called you to do. A lot of us sort through life trying to figure out what does God call me to do? What does God call me to do? What is God calling me to do? What's God's calling on my life? When you are firm in your understanding of who God has made you to be, your identity, you will be clear on what God has called you to do on your activity. You see, 
Your, your understanding, your God-given identity will breathe life into your God-given purpose. What you do flows out of who you are. And in this case, in Peter's case, Peter's saying, as the church, given your status, being part of the standout group, here is your job, is to proclaim his excellencies. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, with whomever you're with, your job is to proclaim God's excellencies. You know, I, I, I often say this to people, you know, because people are like, I, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is all this stuff? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Is it these rules? Is it about following, you know, rules and regulations laid out in this book? No, I say no. It's, it's actually quite simple. Being a Christian is, is, is really about being a signpost. That's it. It's about being a signpost. It's pointing to Jesus, the cornerstone. You see, you and I, we have no power to heal. You and I have no power in and of ourselves to restore, to redeem. You and I can't change anyone. Have you ever tried changing someone? Some of you have a hard time changing yourselves. Like, you, you can't, like we can't change anyone. We can't convert anyone. But you know what we could do? We point to the one who can. We're to be signposts, people who point to Jesus, the chief cornerstone. That's what it means to proclaim his excellencies. Now, a moment of cop-out, okay? Let me just call you on this. Some of us get real comfortable proclaiming his excellencies by living a certain way, our lifestyle. That's good. That's good. But don't use that as a cop-out because sometimes God might actually call you to proclaim with your mouth his excellencies. Sometimes God might bring some people in your life where you need to speak the truth with words, not just with your actions and deeds, but with your actual words. So it's a both and. It's not an either or. Proclaiming his excellencies, being a signpost, pointing to Jesus. And Peter wraps up this particular train of thought by saying, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once again, he's talking about our identity here. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, up until this point, Peter addresses the issue of identity. Then he addresses the issue of our activity. He shows us that who we are is not found in what we do, but what we do flows out of who we are. Now, we can very, very easily end the thought train right there, and it would seem sufficient. It'd be good, like, okay, who, who I am is not found in what I do, but what I do flows out of who I am. Sounds good. We can end the thought train right there, right? Wrong. Wrong. That would be entirely insufficient. Because we have to look at the issue of validity. We looked at the issue of identity. We looked at the issue of activity. Now we have to look at the issue of validity. I don't want to end with this kind of final piece here. See, for most of us, the natural thought progression at this point would go something like this. Well, if my identity isn't found in what I do, rather it's found in who I am, Perhaps I need to stop focusing on what I'm doing and focus more on who I am. Not a bad logic at all. It makes, makes sense based on these points that Peter seems to be indicating here. But if it stops there, then it actually becomes highly illogical. In fact, spiritually illogical. You see, if we stop there, here's what we end up doing. We just end up sitting around asking ourselves deeply introspective questions while drinking chamomile tea, asking questions like, who am I? 
I got to figure this one out, man. I got, I got, you know, the pastor said, I, who I am is not found in what I do, but it's found in who I am. And, and so I got I to gotta figure this thing out. Like, who am I? Who is Dan Min after all? Who am I, right? And we, we sit around asking these questions, but that's actually not how we figure out who we are. You see, we end up, when we ask questions like that, when that becomes the end of the train thought, we end up looking inward into ourselves, looking inward. Okay, so I'm not going to focus on what I'm doing. I'm going to focus on who I am. We end up looking inward, and we still come up short on understanding who we are. Why? Because the answer isn't found in the inward looking, but it's found in the upward looking. It's not found in answering the question, who am I? It's found in answering the question, who is God? When you are able to understand who God is, all of a sudden, who you are becomes clear. Your picture, your vision of who you are comes clearly into picture in light of understanding who God is. To put it differently, who you are is validated in God alone. Who you are is validated in God alone. That is where the validity of your identity lies. You see, the only way we begin to discover who we are is by discovering who God is. In light of discovering who God is, we begin to understand who we are. I'm going to tell you right now, church, tell you right now, there is no one who knows you better than your maker. There is no one, no one on the planet that knows you better than your, he made you. Therefore, he knows what and who you're supposed to be. He knows exactly who you are supposed to be. Many of you know, I have have a five-year-old son. His name is Luke, and um, Luke is, I gotta tell you, I know he's my son, but he is one of the most creative five-year-olds I have ever seen. I mean, like, he's just always thinking up things and always building stuff. He's, he loves art. He is an art fanatic, you know, like, you know, uh, my, my other son couldn't be more different. Jake, you know, my 80-year-old, he's like, yay, math. It's like, where did you come from? Like, that's, that's not, that's not in our gene pool, son. That's not like, you, I know, you're part Asian. Again, but like, it's not who, yay, math. And Luke is like, yay, art. I love drawing. I love, we got drawings like, like coming out of the seams of our house. We got, you know, drawings strewn about all over the entire house. Now, as creative as he is, I have to confess, I can't always tell what he's drawing. He, he brings drawings to me. He's like, Daddy, look. And he's so excited. And he's like, you know, he's leaping, literally skipping across the room. Look, Daddy, look what I drew. I'm like, that's awesome. What is it? It's like, tell you got to explain to me. I, what am I looking at here? Now, uh, let me tell you, church, my son Luke is the only one who can tell me what I'm looking at. He is the only one who knows what I'm looking at that is on this piece of paper. Why? Because Luke is the one who thought it up. Luke is the one who dreamed it up and put it on a piece of paper. Luke is the one who knew what he intended on drawing when he drew the the dinosaur eating the cat who was holding the person who was riding on a wagon. And he, he is the only one. He's the only one who can tell me what I'm looking at because Luke is the one who made it. Folks, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are God's workmanship. We are his handiwork, his masterpiece, his artwork. The Bible also tells us in Psalm 139 that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, that God literally knit you together in your mother's womb. God made you. 
And here we are trying to figure out who we are in all these things that we do by the things that people say about us, to us, around us. All the while, God is like, I made you. I can tell you who you are. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I made you. You are fearfully and wonderful. You are my artwork. I drew you. I thought you up, and I, pop, you came out. That was my doing. I made you. So stop trying to figure out your identity, figuring out who you are with all these other things. Come to me. I'll tell you who you are. I'll tell you exactly who you are. And this is where we come full circle to this passage. When we build our lives on the cornerstone, Jesus himself, we understand our God-given identity, which impacts our activity, because our validity is grounded in Christ alone and nothing else. Now, church, I've gone through my moments of ultra insecurity because I just didn't know who I was. In fact, my college years, those four years in college, were some of the most formative years of my life because it was in those four years I began to discover who God was. That he was my loving father. That he loved me regardless of what I did. You gotta understand, growing up in a, in a Korean household, you know, it's like, you got one of two options, son. You're gonna be a lawyer or a doctor. That's great, dad. That's great, mom. Probably not. Have you seen my grades? And much of my identity was shaped by this upbringing, which influenced my perspective of God. God will not accept me unless I perform at a certain level. Now, my Asian brothers and sisters in the room, some of us, the demons that we struggle with are demons of performance. We need to crucify those things. We need to crucify those things at the cross. Jesus doesn't call us to a life of performance. He calls us to a life of obedience. To say, yes, God, I'm coming to you to find out who the heck I am because I don't know. I thought I was all these things, but all those things have come to an end. Seasons come to an end, and when they do, God, I want to know that I can still stand firm in knowing that who I am in you is all that I need to know. That because you call me a chosen person, part of this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, he made you so he owns you. Luke's artwork, I can't claim the rights to that, okay? Luke is the only one who could claim rights to that because he owns it, because he made it. God calls you his own. Let me tell you, there's no better place to be in the ownership of the living God. When you come to that place, when you build your life on the chief cornerstone who is Jesus, your life will begin to make sense. I hope, you, I hope you trust me on that. Some of you have been walking with Jesus. So you know that to be true. When you build your life on Jesus, the cornerstone, who doesn't shift, who doesn't shake, who is rock solid, who is the foundation of our lives, we begin to understand who we are in Christ.